Hey, hello, my name is Dan Revelato, and you're listening to Stage Directions. Stage Directions is a podcast about theatre and criticism, performance and research. In the next hour, I'm going to be talking to my colleagues Sophie Neild and Bryce Lees about Donald Trump and performance. I'm going to be talking about a deeply strange night of theatre from 1886, and I'll be discussing with director Ellen McDougall her plans as she takes over the Gate Theatre in West London. In November 2016, Vice President-elect Mike Pence went to the theatre. As he took his seats for the smash hit Broadway musical Hamilton, he was met by cheers and some boos. That much is probably not unusual, but what happened afterwards is. As the curtain call ended and Mike Pence and his security detail started to leave the theatre, one member of the cast, Brandon Victor Dixon, stepped forward unfolded a piece of paper and began to address the soon-to-be Veep. Vice President-elect Pence, we welcome you and we truly thank you for joining us here at Hamilton and American Musical. We really do. We, sir, we are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us, sir. But we truly hope that this show has inspired you to uphold our American values and to work on behalf of all of us. Dixon's concerns, politely but firmly expressed, reflected the worries of many people in the US about the newly elected president, Donald Trump. This wasn't the first clash between Donald Trump and performers, and it wouldn't be his last. His election produced an immediate response from major figures from Hollywood, including Meryl Streep. It kind of broke my heart. Robert De Niro. He's a punk. He's a dog. He's a pig. He's a con, a bullshit artist. Musicians like Bruce Springsteen. He's such a flagrant, <laughs> toxic narcissist. And Robert De Niro again. I'd like to punch him in the face. Throughout the campaign and into his presidency, Trump had been lampooned on Saturday Night Live by Alec Baldwin, who managed even to out-vulgar the new president after a report was published by BuzzFeed alleging what Trump had been up to in a Russian hotel room. Guys, no, no, I do not want to talk about the PP. I want to talk about what is really important, which is jobs, okay, because I am going to bring back a thick stream of jobs back into this country. The biggest, strongest, steadiest stream you've ever seen. This country will be literally showered with jobs. Because I am a major whiz at jobs. This will be a golden opportunity for me as president to make a big splash. And after the faltering start of the White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, who had adopted an incongruously aggressive tone with the journalists he was supposed to be serving, he found himself the subject of a celebrated impersonation by Melissa McCarthy. on behalf of you to me for how you have treated me these last two weeks. And that apology is not accepted. Trump has tweeted often and angrily about such portrayals. That he seems to have such a thin skin has only encouraged comedians to mock him. It has sometimes been suggested that one of the triggers for his decision finally to run for office was his bruising treatment at the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner. 
Trump sat among the dinner guests, furiously stone-faced, as he was the subject of jokes by comedian Seth Meyers. And then, of course, there's Donald Trump. Donald Trump has been saying that he will run for president as a Republican, which is surprising since I just assumed he was running as a joke. <laughs> and, most devastating of all... Donald Trump is here tonight. ...by President Obama himself. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. Obama's perfect delivery, his splinter-sharp timing, his lethal irony. Well handled, sir. Well handled. With their own rebuke to a man who had spent months whipping up the racist lie that Barack Obama was not born in the US. And further, Obama's delivery contrasts sharply with Trump's own bulldozing and aggressive style, honed on 14 seasons of The Apprentice and 10 years as impresario of the Miss Universe beauty pageants, both of which he seems to use as a template for his presidency. This is Trump announcing his pick for the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, but it sounds like he's introducing Miss America. And I would like to ask Judge Gorsuch and his wonderful wife Louise to please step forward. Please, Louise, Judge. Here they come. Here they come. Here, he weirdly praises his pick for Secretary of Defense General Mattis for looking like a movie general. Generals are going to keep us so safe. A couple of them, these are central casting. If I'm doing a movie, I pick you, General. And finally, in his widely praised address to the joint session of Congress, he led a long-standing ovation for the widow of Ryan Owens, the Navy SEAL killed in a botched military operation authorised over dinner by Donald Trump, whose additional words sound less like those of a president and more like those of a game show host. And Ryan is looking down right now, you know that, and he's very happy because I think he just broke a record. It made me think, what can we learn about Donald Trump by thinking about his relationship to performance? The performances of other people, his own performance, and the performance style of his entire administration. So I asked two of my colleagues at Royal Holloway, Sophie Neild and Bryce Lease, to help me think about Trump's performative style. Given the speed at which the story is unfolding, it might be worth saying that we met on the 19th of May, and in the previous 10 days, Trump had fired the head of the FBI, Jim Comey. We discovered that Comey kept detailed records of his interactions with Trump, through which we discovered that the president may have tried to get the investigation into General Mike Flynn stopped. As a result of which, a special counsel was appointed to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 election. We met in a very echoey room in central London to discuss Trump and performance. Can I ask a 
what you think about satire, because clearly, mm -hmm. on one level, this feels like a, a bit of a golden age of American television satire. You have all these people like Trevor Noah, like mm -hmm. Samantha Bee, like John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, and of course Trump is on one level a gift for them, because here is an extraordinary object for satire. And I, I watch these clips almost every day, but in the back of my mind there's, there's always a sort of question, is this just missing the point somehow? What, what did you feel about the kind of position that, of satire in relation to Trump? It's very difficult. I mean, there's always been that debate about satire, is it just the carnivalesque, mm -hmm. going all the way to, you know, sort of Bakhtin's analysis that says either this is the beginning of revolution, either this produces for people the alternative interpretation where they go, my God, my God, this is so true, we must immediately rise up. And all the times that that sort of hasn't happened and people have a lovely day out and go, yeah, Abal is Aristo, anyway, back to work and, you know, the factory and all the rest of it. For me, it relates to the question about Hamilton and about the actors and about whether that has any sort of bite. Because I think there's um, an issue, again, about how these commentators are perceived, particularly from the position of, you know, being under attack by them. Oh, well, they would, wouldn't they? I think Spicer has been damaged by the satire because we now all feel sorry for him. I mean, I think the performance that Melissa McCarthy's producing is extraordinary. I don't know if you saw the last one where he was going down the street uh, to Trump Tower on the mobile lectern. And it was tra this tragic figure with kind of tragic music and so on, and then being shouted at in the big jacket or whatever happened the first time. And I thought... In terms of British satire, what's ever really bit, and it was probably spitting image, it's probably going back to those really quite vicious sort of puppets. And the people that they damage are the people who they make look weak. I was thinking of David Steele, am I right? Yes. Who was a kind of tiny, of, in the pocket of David yeah. Owen, and never quite recovered from that. But I suppose, I, I mean, a question in my mind is that there's a sort of, it does feel a bit like, this might be a bit glib, but there's a kind of weird reversal where... Um, Actually, the shows that I've just mentioned, like The Daily Show and, and John Oliver and so on, they're often kind of news shows. I mean, they sort of do investigative reporting. The satire shows sort of have become the news shows, whereas Trump himself is this sort of ubu-like, strange, buffoonish comic character. I think um, it was McSweeney's that published a verbatim transcript of his comment at the beginning of Black History Month mm -hmm. in the section that's usually for kind of comic monologues. Well, there was a really interesting interview with Trevor Noah where he said one of the problems that satirists have is that Trump does his own escalation, that the normal satirical job is, you know, Trump, the politician says something stupid and you kind of just elaborate that and make it bigger and more stupid, but he does that himself. So they kind of go, actually, what we need to do is we go harder into the facts. And that's, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's yeah, an interesting yeah, position yeah. for satire. Yeah, one wonders if it will create something of a, a sort of perfect storm. It's not that the satire will be so perfect or so efficacious that you will turn again to Trump and go, I now see the scales have fallen from my eyes. It yeah. won't all be one directional. Um, but there's something about his performativity, his, the extremes of his performativity, the legibility, the presence of his performativity, and theirs. I mean, Alec Baldwin, for example, if you try and do the face that Alec Baldwin does for Donald Trump, you just think, I'm now going to pull a face which is stern and resolute. You, your face will do that. Mm, yeah. Try it, gentlemen. You'll find that your face does that. And then you look at Trump and go, 
that's clearly what he's doing. When he comes out onto the public podiums, he's thinking, I am the president, I am stern and resolute. And it's, it's just a sort of performed as Alec Baldwin's version. It's not that Alec Baldwin is adjusting his face to look like Donald Trump's face. They're both doing the same thing with their face. This seems to me to be another symptom of the fear of fake news on the left. So that satire itself doesn't want to be accused of fake, um, non-objective coverage of politics, because then it becomes another one of Trump's victims. And I also have noticed just that this huge amount of um, tension in the bodies and the voices of left-wing commentators also, who like to remind us that they're not snowflakes, even if they are aware that um, there might be a special prosecutor and this could be a, a good thing. They're not saying that as a snowflake. They're saying it as just a very kind of on-the-ground, you know, level-headed de Democrat. So actually, the idea of the fake news is really penetrating people in these ways. That it's, that's, this anxiety is there, and I think it's coming into things like Saturday Night Live um, through a return to the facts, actually, interestingly. I mean, the other thing is to say, and in a way, maybe this is almost like Marker Warner's work on publics, it is creating a new public, mm -hmm. maybe even a new counter-public, where we can speak to one another through these kinds of programs, like a much, much larger, like what he thinks of as a reading public in here, it's a sort of visual culture public. But that public needs to speak to itself right now. Celebrities or theatre actors speaking out against Donald Trump, is that, do you think, in any sense, a useful thing? Or does it just play into his hands? And in a way, for the same reason, it, it doesn't land, because those people are the liberal elite. Mm. So. It's not that you don't listen to them because they're the liberal elite, but they're so party pre in the same way that this audience supports him and even, whether they are or not, his friends, his fans, his admirers, that's how he relates to them. Um, of course, the liberal media would say those things. Um, mm. And I wondered, I mean, I wondered if it has anything to do with him being on Twitter and the way that he sort of maintains his private... Twitter account, as though he doesn't have to speak as the president, he can sort of speak as himself half of the time. Um, and I was thinking of that kind of haters gonna hate thing, um, that it's almost like that's where he's coming from. And he said something yesterday, again, about um, this criticism of him speaking inappropriately at these, at these public events. Um, and it was a tweet, and it was something like, the criticisms that I get are terrible, but follow your dreams. I thought, what if your dream is bombing North Korea? You know, is there no point at which people get to say, actually, these dreams are not appropriate? But I thought, it is somewhere in the public discourse, isn't it? Yeah. That you just kind of be yourself and haters will say, you know, Meryl Streep, she'll like say stuff because that's what she does. Well, that, I mean, this is what I was thinking about watching the Meryl Streep video again and also listening to Robert De Niro, mm. is that... To some extent, because they're speaking in recognisable voices and in certain emotional registers, there's the danger that it, it replicates the screen persona and, and therefore, of course, appears to be false. Um, and and um, when she responded to his tweet, which said she, you know, she was an overrated actress, she referred to his supporters as brown shirts and bots. And she also talks about the whispers, and I think when she says the whispers, I'm guessing she means the leakers in the White House. And 
this is where, when we try to use this kind of language, to some extent that he uses, it doesn't seem to work in the same way. For some reason, it feels as if the right is able to instrumentalize and land, as you were saying, to land these comments in the way that they, they feed into this idea that the left, when they speak, are indeed some sort of liberal, maniac, hysterical, you know, all of these... All these they're saying that because they were always going to say that and nobody's surprised that they've said that and here they come and they're saying exactly what we thought well, they were going to say. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about the Meryl Streep speech um, and w what was interesting is that I then started watching some YouTube videos of conservative um, journalists or bloggers who are defending him um, and what, what it produced was actually uh, all of these commentators attempting to read his body language in a nuanced way. So, um, for example, there was a man named Mark Dice who showed five or six clips of Trump making a gesture he thought was comparable to the, this particular performance he gave, which was... I think clearly mocking Serge Kowalewski, you know, the reporter, the disabled reporter from yeah. the New York Times. Um, and, and so in a way it sparked this whole different way of, of reading and interpreting bodies right. by the right-wing press. <laughs> so I think that becomes useful. What's also immediately evident is that they're terrible at reading body language <laughs> because the five or six examples were so completely different. Um, that to overlay them meant that they actually weren't able to read them with, with any nuance, not to mention the fact that it also exposes a kind of unnuanced use of language uh, where the term handicap is employed or right. his small and deformed hands, right. things like this, that they felt totally comfortable saying. And of course, uh, the, the clear performative comparison there is mm -hmm. with Barack Obama, who's mm -hmm. a very cool character, very contained. I mean, people said aloof, slightly academic. And, but, you know, he was very, very funny, but it was very dry humour. Whereas Trump is the opposite. He's a big guy. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He's, as you say, anger is a very interesting thing because usually we think that's probably the worst characteristic you would want from a politician, particularly a politician with enormous executive power as the president has. But it's authenticity as well, isn't it? And it, you, you hear the same thing being said of Jeremy Corbyn when people say, oh, I wouldn't vote for him and I don't like him, but he seems a decent guy. Yes. He, he certainly seems as though he's being himself and good on him for that. And I think there's an element of that with Trump. And I think some of the discourse that's surrounding this assumes that he's failing at the polished performance of politics or being a politician and I wonder if it's not that so much because you don't they're not actually very good at it I think you've picked Barack Obama who was very very good at it but Theresa May for example yesterday with her speech launching the Tory manifesto was a terrifying performance come with me like a sort of terrible stage hypnotist they're not good at it I remember thinking about Blair at the time that he's not actually a good actor they don't inhabit this stuff, they say it, which of course makes it seem more inauthentic and more manipulative. You watch a politician who is clearly reciting lines and you're ordinary person in the street, you think, what are they trying to pull? What's going on? But there's something authentic about anger, about rage. I mean, it's also embarrassing. I think it's embarrassing to his staff. I think Sean Spicer 
for example, who clearly, poor Sean, gets shouted at a lot. And who would want that job? Who would want that job? <laughs> who would want that job? This, I think he's, the anger is, is incredibly powerful for him um, because it leads to a kind of shamelessness. And it's as if he uses the anger to lose all of his inhibitions, which then, so the anger allows him to, to or appears to allow him to make these really gutsy decisions, these really gutsy moves, um, because he has no inhibitions. And so he becomes all impulse. So he is very transactional. Yeah. And this is the same thing that we say, well, this is just another sign of his astute business acumen. That he's the CEO, effectively, who's yeah. kind of running the company. But also, there's no sense of there being a record. There's no sense of him having said something different yesterday. Yeah. And in this, actually, ironically, he's very like the news media, where the last statement is the last statement is the last statement. But the idea that there's a sort of accumulation of points, and you can't say that today because three days ago this happened, or that's not what James Comey has said... It's as though if he persuades the person in the room, it's whatever happens in that room, and when we leave this room, that's what we've decided, that's what we've shaken hands on, and it doesn't really matter if we didn't want to put the building there last week, or the week before, or the week before that. We've shaken hands, we've done the deal, that's where the building's going, that's the sum we've agreed on. He genuinely seems bewildered when people say, but you know you said the opposite of this the other day. Because I think he probably just thinks, but this is how you do business. Mm. You know, well, yeah, I said that, and that was my opening position, but now I've looked at a different situation, and this, the thing has changed. And as you say, it's all transactional. That's what we're finding out through the Comey memos, that when he, he, he gets in for dinner and says, you know, will you be loyal to me? It's a kind of, a, do we have an agreement here? But this goes to what I was saying a moment ago about, about role, and about, I don't mean in terms of kind of dramatic role and how you play the president, which, of course, is a whole other issue. But the sense that some of these roles that he and others inhabit already exist. So when he takes Comey to dinner, which is inappropriate because apparently only the Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General formally are allowed to speak to the White House about matters, to then ask him to effectively pledge allegiance not to the flag or the country but to the president is a misunderstanding of how those things exist in relation to each other. But what interested me particularly about that was he was so surprised that the Democrats were annoyed because, of course, they've been calling rhetorically for the sacking of Comey because of all the business with um, Hillary and all of the odd timings um, in the run-up to the election. He was saying, they're such hypocrites. Why are they complaining? This is what they wanted. Because they're crossed with Comey, therefore I've done what they wanted. But the idea that the, in inverted commas, the president has fired the, in inverted commas, head of the FBI, and that is problematic. Because the relationship of the roles is what's problematic. Doesn't seem to occur to him. Everybody's an individual, and there is no, there's no structure. I wonder if it's because it's it's all about this sort of insatiable need to satisfy, you know, his sense of himself hmm. as playing the role, possibly. Um, so he self soothes, he self glorifies, uh, and there doesn't. This is also this whole reinforces the idea that he's anti ideological, hmm. you know, because he doesn't believe in anything outside of himself. So the way he judges a situation is the extent to which, or a person is the extent to which they um, are part of his own uh, sense of self Mm. and achievement. And in some ways, I think this interestingly goes back to that Time magazine article 
where we discovered that everybody else at dinner gets water and he gets a Diet Coke. And everybody else with their chocolate cream bag gets one scoop of ice cream, he gets two scoops of ice cream. And how satisfied he is about this. So you begin to think, actually, these are not normal political ends. He's not even invested in, in sort of typical political stakes. It's almost as if for him, the only important thing is who gets two scoops of ice cream? Mm. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's so strange about him as well in, in government is that, uh, you know, he obviously, he, part of his appeal was that he's the great deal maker. But what we, you saw through the healthcare bill, it's, of course, it's very easy to make a deal if you don't believe in anything because you just, all he seemed to want was to get a bill passed through the House. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what's in that bill. Um, he doesn't really care. He just wants to be able to say, look, I got a bill through. Well, at least George W. Bush had a discernible political plan that you could disagree with. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can't believe that I'm actually working yeah, back to the days. Yeah. But, but actually, yes, that you thought, okay, I know what he believes in. I know what he's going to pursue. And I can demonstrate against it. I mean, this is the other thing that it's very hard to protest against Trump because there aren't any discernible aims. But there's something there's something that happened, and for my money, it sort of happened maybe in the late 90s. And it was Blair, it was Campbell in this country, and it was the idea of the message, that you got on message and you memorised the message and you went out, and if you were part of that party or organisation, that's what you said and you hammered it home. And the soundbite is part of that. Not to say that there weren't soundbites before, of course, but the idea that you, you went out and you beat the media who were trying to get you to say something else. Well, is, okay, in, let me ask a stupid devil's advocate question. Yeah. Is there something good about Trump in that respect? Because he clearly has no message discipline at all. I'm trying to be as generous as possible. Is there something interesting about Trump possibly initiating a new era of politics where people might actually say a little bit more what they think. No. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I, I, no, I was going to say, if, it, if, that is, if that is a possibility, it will only be because they are forced to do so because of his misperformance. I don't think you could look at Trump and go, oh, look, amateurism, how perfect, you know, what a, what a wonderful way forward yeah. that... Mr. Pooter can kind of bumble into Washington and say what he thinks and teach us all the way in some, what was that film with Kevin Klein? Was it Dave? You know, sort of ordinary yeah. guy. That's not what's happening. And I think that's kind of interesting is the Hollywood fantasy of the everyman president, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, was always the sort of decent, small L liberal America would go to Washington and go, hey, you guys, you know, we should all be a bit more like Jimmy Stewart. We should, could only hope. Um, but it isn't that. It's, it's actually the, the blankness of his performance, the fact that it's, it doesn't say anything, or the fact that it says it one day doesn't mean it's going to still be saying it the next day. I think what I'm trying to say is that in his... It's not unreadable because it's multiply readable, but not trustworthily readable because it, it shifts all the time. Um, it's forced into legibility what the other... You raise the issue of the, of the Republican Party, what they're doing. You see them not answering. You see them not saying, because they're not being given the line. And apparently they're really not being given the line. There's nothing coming out of the White House to say, say strong and say stable as many times as you can. So they have no line. So they don't know what line to take. So what's showing, for my money, is their calculation behind their eyes of their own self-interest. I wonder if actually performativity is a useful way of thinking about Trump because I suppose 
the idea of performativity or of language or identity being being a, a certain kind of performance is that it not always but mostly suspends a notion of psychology or intentionality uh, a lot of the time people who are commentating on trump there are these questions about is he stupid or is he really clever is he incompetent or is this all a brilliant steve bannon strategy um is he a narcissist can we make those kind of questions the performativity thing gets us a bit away from those sort of questions which are interesting but possibly they miss what is actually happening. Let's, maybe the question is not whether Trump and his administration are trying to do a certain thing or failing to do a certain thing. Thinking about them performatively might encourage us to just think, what are they doing? In the very early days of the presidency, there were all those photographs of him kind of looking out of the window, almost a bit sort of, my God, I'm here, I'm the president, that sort of sense of lack of self-recognition in the role, it worked. And there was speculation as to whether he'd stick to it for four years or whether the sense of kind of constant change that you probably have in a big business environment would not be the case. It's all much more nuanced, much more careful, much more diplomatic, much more strategic. You have to focus a lot more. So I guess it came to me, a similar kind of question the other day, the performance of in-chargeness. What's the what was he doing when he took responsibility for firing Comey? Because he'd, he'd clearly been given a line, whether it was true or not. The line was that the incoming deputy attorney general had reviewed the situation as a new member of staff, as a new colleague, and had thought, actually, going back over this business last summer, last autumn, um, and the, the management of the Hillary emails thing, it's really not very good. We might want to look again at this. And... Trump had reviewed the material and come to this decision. And that lasted, what, you know, 12 hours, 24 hours. So what at that point is the reason for the disruption of whatever framework for our understanding of what's happened has been put in place? Boredom, risk, inattention, a wish to, to be the CEO, to be in charge. And there, I suppose, we're looking for, you know, motive in a, in a, in a mm-hmm. classic sense, in a way that maybe we're looking for a coherence of character that just isn't there. I think what's interesting is that the answer, perhaps, to my question, is he in initiating a, a brave new world of honest politicians? Of course, it's not true, because you can't say that he speaks his mind, because he appears to have no actual values. He just says things. So that's the opposite, obviously, of speaking your mind. He just seems to, he purely performs on one level. And that journalists are trying to make, they're trying to take these facts and weave together a coherent narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty, you know, journalists from the Times, from Washington Post are saying, it's impossible. You cannot do it. You cannot weave a coherent narrative out of this. But that's, that's mm-hmm. interesting about our expectations of, you know, what is this person like? What's the character of this person? You know, when we look at Obama and say he's this kind of person and it's going to be this kind of presidency and here's the narrative. And in this small scene, how is he serving the overall super objective mm-hmm. with the yeah. small objective in this scene? Mm-hmm. And actually, as we mm-hmm. were saying before, there is no small objective apart from winning that situation and saying what needs to be said in that situation to win it. And there is perhaps no super objective. It doesn't go any further than that scene as though it was a scene in The Apprentice. You, you say something clever and you be, get out. Yeah, it's the, back to the two scoops of ice cream. That's exactly. the objective. That's the winning. You know, there's that sort of thing, when, the, when particularly when Netflix 
dumps 12 episodes, a whole season at the same time. Some of those things, which are great, but sometimes you realise that they put some huge cliffhanger or twist at the end of every episode, which propels you to want to watch another episode. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the end, you kind of go, that didn't make any sense at all. It was just keeping me watching. Why was he lost in the forest? Yeah, exactly. And then found at the beginning of the next mm. episode. Yeah. But it's sort of, in, in that sense, he is a sort of box set president. It really feels like a Netflix drama because you kind of, when he fired Jim Comey, it just felt like it was, I did not see that coming. Let's watch another episode before we go to bed. And just to step on your point, did you not think that actually the lines that he was saying that turned out not to be true about, oh, and yeah, the FBI rank and file had lost faith in him, are what somebody would say in a play or in a TV show if they were firing the head of the FBI. Yeah. And I think there's something about, I've sort of come at it slightly obliquely, but his off-script... Off I get the sense, I don't know whether this is right or not, that he's being given tighter and tighter scripts by whoever his people are now. I think that um, press release that came out mm -hmm. on the appointment of the special prosecutor, we welcome this, we the welcome swift, swift resolution. And of course, by the next morning, it was, what on earth has gone on while I was sleeping, um, <laughs> was the sense that you got. Yeah. Um, and when he's kind of doing one of those speeches with this slightly oddly too far apart mm -hmm. prompt screen, so he's mm -hmm. really looking from side to side in a slightly bizarre way, where he seems to go off script is where he's almost commenting or amplifying mm. something and it, I don't know whether he's seeing it for the first time it's possible he's seeing it for the first time because he then amplifies and says what would make an appropriate amplification of that point if you were improvising so he will say something like um, you know we had to get rid of Comey uh, and it's a good idea. It's a really good idea. It's a commentary mm, yes, on the line right. that he's just read. That's not a brilliant example. No, but that's, that. he does that, yeah. It's, it's also thinking about Netflix that maybe we just need to stop thinking about this kind of separation where mass media is commenting upon. But, but rather when you have um, a reality television star as, as president, that it's not that one comments on the other and it's not that the politician then watches television and follows its lead. It's that we really are in an indiscernible period now in which both the way in which we interact with governments and the way in which we interact with mass culture is through the same medium and therefore we understand and, and interrogate them and interpret them the same way. And that, I mean, this is why I think we really have to be self-critical about our own consumption of the government right now. We are yes. consuming the government. And, and really think about, I mean, the mayor of, of Los Angeles, I thought, said something really helpful where he um, suggested we need to start focusing again on concrete programs. What are we actually doing? What are we involved in? And, you know, he said two weeks ago, Sanctuary Cities won their ability to remain sanctuary cities, which is leading to all kinds of incredible new programs around homelessness, around gender equality, LGBT programs. And he said, this, this is really stealing our attention, which means that the alt-right wins. Because as long as the left is sort of watching the spectacle, consuming yeah. the spectacle, they're, they're actually completing, letting go of any kind of grassroots political yeah. um, or, you know, uh, form of organization. Like. That's great. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you.
want to talk about the most fascinating evening of theatre that I didn't attend. We all know how common it is for two people to watch the same piece of theatre and come away with entirely different views of what they've seen. What's less common is for an audience to sit in the theatre where a play is being performed, but come away having experienced a completely different play. But that's what happened at the Meininger Theatre, Germany, on the 27th of January 1886. The story is related by the Danish writer Hermann Bang in his book Theatret the Theatre, published in Copenhagen in 1892, and it concerns the play Ghosts by Henrik Ibsen. Ibsen wrote Ghosts in the summer of 1881, and it was published before the end of the year, with only one exception, I think. Ibsen published his plays first, usually to hit the Christmas market, and arranged their productions afterwards. The play, if you don't know it, is a domestic drama about Mrs Alving, the widow of a philandering husband whose son returns home and has inherited his father's syphilis. Worse still, he begins a relationship with a maid, unaware that she's his illegitimate half-sister. Apart from incest and venereal disease, the play satirises the hypocrisies of religion, small-town life, and ends brutally with the son sinking into syphilitic madness, his mother hesitating about whether to end his suffering by taking his life. The play caused an immediate sensation with ferocious articles across the popular press. Hermann Bang writes, What the Scandinavian press wrote about it in the following weeks should be gathered and kept in an archive. Disrespect and stupidity roamed the land. Indeed, while we're used to a bit of controversy helping sales, in this case the opposite happened. It simply was not a book that could be seen in a respectable home, ironically mirroring what Pastor Manders in the play says about the free-thinking pamphlets he discovers on Mrs Alving's desk. And if the play was hard to sell, it was even harder to stage. There are some readings in conditions of strict privacy, there are plans for a regional tour, but they collapse. Theodore Anderson of the Casino Theatre Copenhagen reads it 20 times before finally deciding he can't do it, and the same story is repeated at all the major theatres. Another sign of its controversial status is that it takes three years for it to be translated into German. Most of Ibsen's prose plays are translated simultaneously or very shortly after the original production. But it is 1884 before the play is published in Germany, and just the same, its controversy means that it must not be read, and it cannot be seen. Now, one of the most interesting theatres in Germany at the time was the Meininger, a small court theatre in the central German state of Thuringia, overseen by the Duke of Saxe-Meiningen, in whose hands the theatre pioneered many remarkable innovations in 19th century theatre production, championing new forms of theatrical pictorialism, greater realism of presentation, and pretty much inventing the modern figure of the director. The Meininger had staged Ibsen's early play The Pretenders in 1876, and the Duke was sympathetic to his writing, but for now, Ghosts was still too controversial for a court theatre. Instead, he organised a one-off performance of A Doll's House, on the 27th of January, 1886. The leading role of Nora was to be played by Marie Ramlow, already a major star at the Residence Theatre in Munich, where she'd first performed the role six years earlier. That might have been enough in itself to attract an audience intrigued by what they'd heard about Henry Gibson, but word got around that some people in the theatre would have copies of Ghosts, and the largely young audience filled the theatre not to see a doll's house, but to read Ghosts. Herman Bang takes up the story. Ms. Ramlow was excellent, but the young audience barely heard her. 
They read when the curtain went up, and they read when it was down. They read in amazement and furtively, as if afraid of the words, as the slim yellow volume was passed from hand to hand. What an extraordinary evening, he continues, in which those hundreds of young people read as one a play about the sins of our fathers while another marital drama played out on the other side of the footlights. A play about parents and their children forced its way onto the stage. They had not dared read the book at home, so they read it secretly here. In other words, the audience went into a production of A Doll's House and came out thrilled to have experienced ghosts. Why do I love this story so much? First, it's a wonderful reminder that audiences do their own thing. Whatever aims you might have as a playwright, a director, an acting company, when the show opens in front of an audience, something else happens, and they always make it their own. And the audience's rereading can be extreme. I know I'm not the only writer to sit in the first previews of a play I've written and suddenly realise what the play is about because the audience is telling me by their reaction. Second, it's a great example of the way that the theatre is an illicit place. It sits on the cracks of the culture. It's both formal and informal. It's respectable and it's rowdy. It's literary and it's popular. And in this instance, to a dizzying extent, it sits on the very edge between private and public. And it starts to animate all those complex cultural ambiguities about the nature of public and private space and public and private morality. This is nowhere more paradoxically evident than in the fact that this was a play too scandalous to be seen reading in private, so they had to read it in public. Third, the play reminds me of the complicated and generally unresolved relationship between the page and the stage. We're often told that a play is incomplete on the page and only comes alive in the theatre, but this doesn't really make much sense, because a play is in one sense perfectly complete on the page, while the staged version will always be an incomplete partial rendering of the play. And here's a beautiful reversal of that supposed relationship. The play on the stage at the Meininger seemed a lifeless repetition, but the play on the page crackled with illicit life. Fourth, it's a great example of how modernism changed not just the theatre, but also its audiences. Characteristic of so many modernist theatre movements is a battle between the theatre and its public. You probably know of the many moments where the modernist theatre provoked its audience, but it's also important to remember when the audience resisted the theatre. When Ibsen's The Wild Duck was first performed in Paris, the audience, sceptical of the play's central metaphor, took to quacking satirically every time the bird was mentioned. And finally, I'm interested not just in the story, but the storyteller. Hermann Bang was a former actor, a critic, and would go on to become one of Denmark's most important novelists. Although he was, at times, a naturalist and thus associated with Ibsen and the literature of the 19th century, his novels have a modern sensibility that look forward to, for example, the Nouveau Roman of the 1950s. As Beverly Driver writes in her essay, Hermann Bang's prose, The Narrative as Theatre, Bang is a cool observer of his characters from the outside. He doesn't indulge in much psychological description, instead describing his characters externally as if they were on a stage. He just tells us what we would see. Other literary historians have observed that something of the same aversion to psychological revelation is visible in his letters, but there may be another reason for that. Hembang was gay, or, to use a less anachronistic term, homosexual, or Uranian, or an invert, or terms in use in the late 19th century. 
In keeping with many others at the time, Bang interpreted his own homosexuality in terms of possessing both an active masculine side, as he described it, and a passive feminine side. And this may explain some aspects of his literary style. As Paul Bjerby writes in his essay The Prison House of Sexuality, Afraid of feminine excess, Bang stressed the importance of a style that was simple, clean and straightforward, such a style would appear real and true, i.e. manly. Intriguingly, this might even suggest that his naturalism was itself a kind of passing, realism as a way of butching up your literature. Indeed, Bang associated his so-called feminine side with theatricality, suggesting a kind of flamboyance, a flirtatious exuberance, a playfulness with representation, a sense that not everything means what it appears to mean. How better to tame this kind of theatricality than through realism, a form where everything is meant transparently to be what it seems. But even this style is not that simple. Some of Bang's letters to his male lovers have been published, and what has been noted is the same stylistic reserve. But now, it appears to be itself a signal. As Bjerby writes, the letters form a mask, a discourse of absence, of non-representation. In other words, their very absence of emotion was a representation of emotion, a signal to his reader to understand something quite other than the meaning apparently conveyed. This brings us back to a doll's house. It seems to me that we're now in a position to understand the subterranean tremors and pulsations of that performance through Herman Bang's eyes. Remember that this is a moment where a story of marital heterosexuality becomes a story of sexual deviance on the other side of the footlights. It's a story about the furtive seeking out of taboo sexuality in semi-private spaces, a trope that would have been familiar to many lesbians and gay men in the late 19th century. And even Herman Bang's explanation of his own sexuality is transformed into theatrical dynamics. The active masculinity of naturalism, putting on a doll's house and communicating the play directly to the audience, is transformed into queer passivity, when the audience reject that play and a different one, in Bang's words, forced its way onto the stage. So that's why I find this evening of theatre so fascinating because it's a story about subcultural rereadings and reappropriations. It's a reminder that realism and naturalism, wonderful, extraordinary, fascinating movements as they are, can never entirely close down and control the meanings of their own plays. And that theatricality, the complicated transactions between stage and audience, between page and stage, between the means of representation and the things represented, has its own dynamics that can free a play from its initial semantic moorings and make the event into something thrillingly and dangerously different. I think we're in a bit of a golden age for theatre directors in Britain. Robert Icke, David Mercatali, Jude Christian, Carrie Cracknell, Joe Hill Gibbons, Rupert Gould of course, Ned Bennett, Michael Longhurst, Polly Findlay, uh, Lindsay Turner. These directors have all come to prominence in the last, what, 10 to 15 years? And that's just the few names that spring to mind. Apologies obviously to everyone who should be on that list. 
What these directors all share in very, very different ways is a strong and imaginative visual sensibility, uh, an enthusiasm for European models of theatre production, an openness to performance and physical theatre, uh, an exuberantly theatrical sense of storytelling, and a respect for the value of good theatre writing, but alongside unslavishly imaginative ideas about how to bring it to the stage. For me, one of the most exciting directors of this generation is Ellen McDougall. I first came across her work when I saw her precise, bleak and beautiful production of Ivan and the Dogs by Hattie Naylor for ATC. Since then, I was dazzled by her playful and profound production of Henry V, a reworking by Ignace Cornelisson of that story for children, which she directed at the Unicorn. And her production of Roland Schimmelfennig's Idomeneus was rich and inventive, joyful and profound, a piece of truly theatrical storytelling about the stories we tell ourselves as individuals and as a culture. It really was one of the most extraordinary productions I've seen this decade. At the National Theatre, she assisted luminaries like Katie Mitchell, Bijan Shebani and Marianne Elliott. She was a director on the lyrics pioneering Secret Theatre project and now she's taken over the Gate Theatre in Notting Hill, West London. I spoke to her in June about her plans for her first season. Ellen, welcome Hello. to the podcast. Um, Thank you. Last week, you announced your inaugural season as Artistic Director of the Gate Theatre. Before we get on to that, I wanted to ask you a broader question, which I suppose is, why run a building? Is that something you've always wanted to do? Um, no, it definitely isn't. I don't. Even when I think right back to becoming a director, I don't think I ever really thought I was going to be a director. But I suppose in the Gate Theatre has always been a place that I've really loved. And I love the space and I love the international strand of the programming here. And I love the sense that it's a place in which you can kind of do anything and you can sort of take risks. I, I had been the associate director here for a couple of years yeah. and then I made a show and I think one of the things about that experience that was really amazing was that I sort of felt when I made that show I felt like I was in a conversation with an audience as part of a bigger program that was more than just my show and so when the when the opportunity came up I I think that was that was the thing that really attracted me to it in terms of being able to have a a longer and maybe deeper connection with an audience and with a space. The other thing that I've that I've really loved doing, which I guess I couldn't have known I would love before I applied, but I, maybe I just sort of sensed I would, is the fact that I've been able to talk to other directors actually about ideas that they're really interested in and that want they want to do that I could never do or that they have a totally different approach to me and being able to give them space to make work that is really different maybe from what I would make but still really excites me. And the show you made uh, at the gate, of course, was uh, Idomeneus, the play by Roland Schimmelfennig. Uh, and in some yeah. ways, I think of that as being, I suppose I would say, typical of the gate in the sense that it's a contemporary European play, but it's drawing on a sense of a, a great long tradition. It's asking quite hard questions about that tradition. I know that that's not actually exclusively what the gate has always done but do you think of the 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 gate as being a, a sort of particularly european or international theater 
yes, I, I definitely do. And I think uh, the idea that you can come to this place stuck behind a bus stop and see work that's sort of from places that have a different perspective on the world to us maybe or that ask different questions or that turn theatre upside down and make you think about it differently has been one of the things that's made me always want to come back here even when I know nothing about what the what the show might be or the people making it. I guess you must have started thinking about applying for the position uh, at the gate um, before June last year. In other words, I suppose my question is, do you in any sense think differently about working on a theatre with a kind of European profile after the Brexit vote? Oh, yeah, very good question. Um, I suppose it has kind of sharpened my intent on doing that. Hmm. In as much as I've always felt in terms of developing my own work and developing the kind of work I want to make, I've always felt challenged and inspired by reading plays and seeing work made outside my immediate frame of reference. And that's helped me to understand who I am um, more precisely, I think. And and I suppose that's why I'm drawn to The Gate, because it's a place that, that welcomes that and has always done that and is built on that kind of ethos. Post-Brexit, I suppose what it does to that intent is sharpen a sort of political gesture that's underneath that as well, in terms of going actually this is really important in as much as it's about collaboration and kind of really standing for that idea that reaching out across cultures and sharing ideas is is valid and important. And that seems to, to me like a, it's a very interesting moment because I mean, British theatre isn't always distinguished for being particularly open to other cultural traditions and traditions of making theatre but it does feel to me that actually over the last 10 years British theatre has been much more open actually than it has been at other points in the past so it does seem to be an important time to ensure that even if I don't know economically we are uh, slamming the door to some extent that we're not doing that culturally as well Exactly. I think that's that's what it boils down to. And there's there's so much complexity around that breakup, if you like. Um, but the thing that I do feel totally clear on is from a cultural point of view, hmm. the conversations are better. It also talks to why most of my work, wherever possible, in fact, nearly all of it, I think, has, has been with a diverse range of practitioners. And, and the reason for that is is similar, which is to do with the fact that it's kind of a proven thing that if you have a range of viewpoints in a room in a conversation people think more clearly and think more deeply about what they're going to say and there isn't a kind of assumption of well we can all agree on this so obviously this is the case there's a kind of a deeper interrogation that happens by virtue of the fact that you can recognize that there are different points of view in that conversation I think the other thing I suppose I think of when I think of your directing is actually you've you've worked in a lot of different kind of areas of of theatre so you've you have directed new plays you've directed classics you've kind of worked with devising you've worked a lot in children's theatre adaptations pantomimes I mean (laughs) is there a thread that runs through all of that or is that just you 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 find it very hard to say no to things or 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 is there (laughs) 
is there a kind of is that for you is there a thread that runs through all of that work um there really is yeah there really is it's very deliberate all of that work has sort of shaped me and made me I think a better director than if I had just done one thing so the thing about panto is it's it's incredibly technical, but it's also always demo- it's de- it's a democratic kind of form in, in, in as much as there are people in the audience that only come to Panto mm. um, every year. So as an opportunity as an artist to kind of say something or make something, it's it's very unique and, and important. But also it's it's got that kind of direct relationship with an audience always. At, at, at its kind of base layer, there's a kind of recognition of we're all sharing this game. Um, and that really talks to actually the way I made the Domineus, which I, I guess, you know, when you look at those two things on a page, you think, well, they couldn't really be more different, but actually the spirit of, of the way you approach Panto is absolutely the way I approached the Domineus. And as much as I wanted to kind of say, we're all in this room telling this story, what does that mean? And I, I, you could see the, both the types of diversity uh, from your own work, but also, in the kind of working conditions that you you try to achieve in this in this new season, because uh, there are five shows. A lot of them are quite hard to categorise, really. But you know, there's at least one adaptation. There are a couple of them that are sort of collectively created. There are two British premieres of European plays. There's a revival of an American. Uh, play but the ways in which those are all going to be made seem to be not always obvious and conventional how do you go about building a season I think I started from the from the place where I sort of knew I had to love every show in some way yeah um so they're all things that I care deeply about and I think all of them well I know that all of them for me feel like a direct response to what it means to be alive now in some way. I also felt really conscious that I wanted a range of voices and also forms. One of the things I've always loved about the gate is not knowing what to expect and the space being configured completely differently each time you come. I mean, the first few times I came to the gate um, was when Natalie and Carrie were running it and I genuinely couldn't recognise how the room was the same room that I'd seen the time before. And I kind of, I think, as well as that being kind of fun and, and, you know, delightful, there's also something quite useful about it from a political standpoint, which is to kind of go, each time you come, you sort of have to ask yourself what your relationship is to that story or or to that production as an audience. So you're... Your debut show, which I think you're directing yourself, is The Unknown Island, uh, which is going to be an adaptation of a, of a short story by Jose Saramago. Tell me what attracted you to that idea. The story is about the search for an unknown island. And so it's, in that sense, it's a, an exploration of what imagination is and perhaps also, by extension, why we need stories at all. By the end, the thing that is discovered is to do with relationships between people. And so the idea of going on a kind of epic journey further than the furthest thing beyond the horizon is kind of reconfigured to being about reaching from one person to another. And so 
in a world which increasingly seems to want us to feel afraid of each other and suspicious of each other and disconnected but by consequence from each other it felt really important to begin with a piece of work that's about recognizing that sharing a space being present and seeing one another is actually in, in a way a sort of radical an important thing to protect and to fight for. I did read it thinking, yeah, there is something very, very theatrical about this because it's something about that reaching out for the impossible. It sort of reminded me a bit of the way that the theatre sometimes reaches out to represent something, but in the act of doing that slightly defers it. So it's always slightly out of reach, but there's something important in that, in that yearning to 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 grasp something ungraspable exactly yeah and i think there's something about um the fact that the story kind of works through that metaphor that it feels as though that's part of that conversation really in, in as much as it's about kind of going this stands for something but it, the thing itself is perhaps beyond the language that we know but it's something we can feel and we mm. can sort of connect with the possibility of it possibility of seeing things differently do you know how mm -hmm. you're going to adapt this thing, which is entirely a piece of prose? It doesn't have an obvious dramatic shape. How are you going to do it? Uh, very brilliantly. No, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to uh, work primarily with the text as written. I'm not writing a new script in in uh, that you might do if you had a different type of text i think the 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 brilliant thing about that about the way that text is written is although on the first reading perhaps on the page it looks like one singular narrative actually there's sort of multiple voices woven in there already which is such a gift uh in terms of dividing it up between multiple voices who might tell the story so there's definitely a pragmatic voice in there that is constantly trying to shut down rationalize and contain uh, the ideas that are that are or the questions that are being asked and it reminds me of a conversation we had uh, last week about uh, the way Theresa May uses language and that there's statements that have become sort of iconically identifiable with her like Brexit means Brexit mm. that in the end don't mean anything at all but sort of contain a sense of well it's a tr as a truism it kind of contains a sense of meaning this mm. means this but actually in the end stops you thinking anything at all um, and there's that that that's definitely one of the voices in the in the story and then there's there's another voice that I want to introduce to the story I think a little bit, which is to do with the way the lines are delivered, perhaps more than the content of them, which is a voice that wants to kind of really question and fight with the, the need for, to see the world differently. Can I move on to um, two of the other shows that are in the season, which are contemporary European pieces of work? There's Susie Stork by Magali Mugel and Trust by Falk Richter, um, which are going mm -hmm. to be translated from the the, the French and the German. Mm -hmm. I think they're really interesting choices. I mean, partly because these are figures who are not known very well here, though they're very significant figures on the, the continent. But they're, they're also very interesting as, as writers. They're very unusual writers because both of them kind of work very, very collaboratively. Falk Richter increasingly works quite directly with 
the choreographer, I think uh, Anouk van Dijk, but uh, Magali Mugel, who's also written in those sort of collaborative uh, situations. Is that part of what attracted you to the to that work? Uh, in the case of Falk Richter, definitely. I met Falk a few years ago now when I first read that play and he said to me, you know, it could be done with three actors, it could be done with 17 dancers, there's no fixed way to do this text. And you might guess from those two examples. Um, and what I loved about it was actually kind of not so much that. I sort of felt like there's there's also a very clear narrative through this and there are characters' voices that you want to see on stage. But also the, the premise of it, which is a couple stuck in a relationship in which there is no trust, trying to work out whether it's possible for them to trust one another again and stay in the relationship or whether, in fact, they have to break out of it. And you have this feeling that certainly one of them can't really imagine themselves outside of that relationship even while they know that it's not working and as it goes on it becomes clear that that's also a conversation between us as a culture and the the economic system that we live in exactly in terms of recognizing that it's abusive and violent and oppressive but also knowing that we can't imagine ourselves outside of it so that's that's what really drew me to to that play and Jude Christian who will direct it has really kind of taken it and, ru and run with it and is working with Falk actually in the way that you said in an inc incredibly collaborative way. And what about um, Susie Storr? This is not a, a text I'm familiar with at all. Is it a kind of narrative play or a play of voices? It's a narrative play. It's about a woman called Susie Stork who is in a, a region that has been forgotten and so is in a place that where she feels she doesn't have a voice. And, and that might be said of, of all the people that surround her in her life, too. The play takes place over the course of one evening um, and it's presented by a kind of he's called a chorus. It's open who he is in relation to the story. But let's say he presents the story to us in a very forensic way. So the, the, the focus of the story is over a kind of two hour period one evening when she's waiting for her husband to come home. And she's listening to her children screaming in the room upstairs. And, and we find out that she's actually locked them in um, because she kind of has reached breaking point. And what it is about, I think, really, is it's about that kind of, I suppose, taboo that certainly I feel very aware of, of a woman who regrets having had children yeah. and who is kind of in this evening is discovering that actually she never chose to. It was just the thing that was done. It's interesting what you say there about there being this sort of quite complicated narrator chorus figure in Susie Stork, because, of course, that's in a very, very different way. That's also true of Twilight Los Angeles 1992 by Anna Devere Smith, which is a... Uh, well, why don't you describe that play? So Anna Devere Smith is an actor and also a writer, and she um, wrote it in response to the riots that broke out after the police who badly beat up Rodney King were acquitted. Yeah. And so the riots spread across the city over, I think, a, a relatively short period of time, but a huge number of people were killed and injured in that, in that moment. And so what she did was interview a huge range of people about their experience of what happened, going from the court case, the acquittal, through the riots themselves. And then there's a kind of moment towards the end that's sort of a reflection on, on it. So there's 
the all the extremes of, of positions that you might imagine are, were involved in that uh, represented in the in the text and the way the text is is written is it's uh, very short extracts or almost scenes or stories if you like from each of those different people and in the original production Anna Devere Smith performed them all herself so there was this sense that that all of those voices were filtered through this woman's body mm. which I kind of an extraordinary um, exercise in itself and an extraordinary kind of theatrical idea. I, I also think that the the exercise of, of interrogating an event like that in the way that she did by by getting the purest way to access a multitude of opinions and, and viewpoints just still feels such an important thing to look at and to to hear. And I suppose that thought also in a very different way but underlies the last show that has been announced, Effigies of Wickedness, which uh, is a cabaret of songs that were banned by the Nazis in the 1930s. Is that right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, because, I mean, without, without wanting to, you know, make completely crass comparisons um, between the past and present, um, there is something there about how culture fares or doesn't fare in very dark times that, that can't help but feel resonant now I, I mean that was that was absolutely the the, the thought behind why, why do this now you kind of don't really need to talk very loudly about why that feels resonant no. um as a moment but um but the thing that is extraordinary and that really surprised me about that music is that so many of those songs feel like they could have really been written yesterday there's songs about uh, gay liberation uh, there's songs about abortion rights for women uh, and there's another song about how our addiction to oil is going to cost us the world <laughs> the thing that also feels valuable about doing it now and about what why you know why unearth them and apart from the fact that they're brilliant is that there's there's a defiant spirit in them that kind of is saying underneath we, we will survive this and that's an incredibly moving thing to read or hear in a, in a, in a song lyric when you know what is about to happen because they were written in the 20s and 30s but the idea that the the human spirit and that defiance and and a a kind of what you get in the sort of cabaret form as a celebration of difference it feels like a lovely way to finish the season I suppose with on a tone of in a way positivity albeit with a shadow over it it's not naive positivity but it's there's a there's a feeling of uh, a defiance in there and how did you come across these songs? So there were kind of two things happening at the same time. One was that I was having a conversation with Daniel Kramer about could we do an opera at the gate and what might that look like? Sort of looking through chamber operas and then thinking about could 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 we reorchestrate something huge and do it with three guitars in the, in the gate theatre, which is an idea that hasn't gone away, but isn't this one. <laughs> and um, so we were sort of going through that, that library of music, really looking for something that felt right for both both of us. And... And knowing that the point of doing an opera at the gate was to in some way reinvigorate or, or, or challenge the kind of received idea of what opera is. And then the other thing that happened completely separately was that I met this opera singer called Peter Brathwaite, who was in my production of Othello in the, in, as a musician, who has a, a deep love and fascination with this canon of music. So he was talking to me about it and I kind of started to think, well actually that feels like a thing that you kind of can't not do right now 
obviously they hold together in your head as part of a season. How do you, how do those how do the fable and the verbatim um, fit together for you? Well, I suppose it's that thing of um, as I said, but both in in some way are trying to understand better how what it means to be alive now, and the ways that they are doing that formally are sort of as you say almost polar opposites. But um, I think the reason that the Saramago feels like an important place to start is that it kind of says this is a room in which we can imagine anything, but primarily it's a room in which we can seek to understand one another better. Mm. And and actually the, the radical thing of being present in a room with a group of strangers where we're not looking at our phones or pretending to look elsewhere and not notice each other, but we're actually focusing on what it means to be alive is is kind of the reason to start with that and then and then you can reach a place where you're doing a, a verbatim play that's about very real experience but that equally is asking a similar thing of the audience which is to go can you see this event through these 45 or whatever different perspectives well thank you i think that about wraps it up thank you for taking the time to talk to me and I look forward to The Unknown Island, which opens on the 11th of September, is that right? The official press night is, I think, the 18th, so that's, yeah. But yes, thanks, Dad. Really lovely to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Cheers. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Bryce Lee, Sophie Neild and Ellen McDougall for giving me their time. Music is by Nick Powell and Nick McCarthy. Graphics by Liam Jarvis. Thanks to Eloise Whitmore and Elaine McGurr for advice and support. Stage Directions is brought to you with the support of the Department of Drama, Theatre and Dance at Royal Holloway, University of London. We're on Twitter at at StageDirectPod. Meanwhile, I'm on Twitter at the crassly unimaginative at Dan Rebellato. See you next time. Cheers.